Hi, everybody. This is Pete Worrell, and I want to welcome you to this month's episode of Positive Enterprise Value. Positive Enterprise Value is a blog and podcast interview site where we provide interesting intellectual content for entrepreneur owner managers who seek to build and capture enterprise value in a capital gain someday. In this month's episode, I'm happy to welcome my friends George and Carrie Mock. The Mock family has owned Nye Lubricants of Fairhaven, Massachusetts for several generations now. Nye is one of the most innovative companies in the specialty lubricants business worldwide. It got its start way back in the whaling days. In fact, it was started in 1844 when they were hunting whales for the oil uh, to light lamps, which then became sometimes used as lubricating oil. And ultimately, the company evolved over the course of the last hundred years to be a specialty designer and manufacturer of synthetic lubricants. Nye has a library said to be the largest in the world of lubricant formulations for all kinds of applications, from the highest tech applications to the lowest tech ones. And they're most well known for their application of lube for life, where they actually provide lubrication uh, to OEM manufacturers who have components that might need lubrication but can only do it when the component is being manufactured. Nye recently uh, selected a new majority owner in the form of Fuchs Petrolab, a uh, family-controlled, publicly-owned business headquartered in Germany, but with significant presence in North America. George Mock, his brother Fred Mock, have been running the company for the past several decades. Their mom and dad, Elise and George Mock Sr., ran the company before them. The Mock family had been betting the farm on the company for a very long time and had decided that really their uh, personal capital was uh, one of the things holding the company back, that if they had more readily capital available to risk, the company could probably go grow faster or develop more products and more formulations better for their customers than they could do by themselves. So they set out on a worldwide search for the best possible strategic investor and decided on Fuchs. Fuchs acquired 100% of the stock of Nye from uh, the uh, extended family of the Mocks and from their employees through an employee stock ownership plan, which they have had in place for uh, nearly 20 years. In this uh, episode of Positive Enterprise Value, we have at least two firsts. The first one is that I was successful in persuading both George and Carrie to join me as uh, my co-interviewees. Carrie was a very important part of our work with Nye over the past uh, five or six years. And the, sec- the other first is that we did this uh, podcast remotely uh, using a, an online uh, podcast interview uh, service. The reason, of course, is because we're in the time of uh, the COVID-19 uh, virus. And so rather than uh, come together either in Fairhaven or in Portsmouth, we decided to try this uh, remotely. Uh, the mocks were very, very generous, spending a lot of time 
on this interview with me, uh, answering uh, questions very openly and candidly about uh, the history of the family, the company, their thoughts about decision-making, their thoughts about the future, and their thoughts about how uh, sometimes family businesses are intertwined not only in a business sense. Here we are. It's it's April 7th, right? Yeah, April 7th, 2020. Yes. And um, we're in the middle of this uh, disconcerting time where uh, we have uh, a health concern about the CV-19 virus. Uh, Bigelow is in its fourth week of... Uh, people working at their option, uh, distributed or in the office. And I'm here with George and Carrie Mock. And so uh, welcome. Thank you for being with me at Positive Enterprise Value. Thank you, Pete. We've been, we've been looking forward to this very much. Thanks, Pete. So we acknowledge these are unusual circumstances, and um, we may refer to them during the course of our, our interview, right? But um, I will also point out this is the first time we've used a remote uh, interview technique because this was supposed to be the morning after a party we were throwing together. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the the uh, the party is on hold, obviously, but I frankly I think the uh, the celebration will be all of the more uh, uh, poignant and and um, fun because we'll also be cele- celebrating a uh, a newfound freedom um, once we get through the worst of this this whole period where we're all confined. Um, I do take comfort in, in getting to know Microsoft Teams and, and Zoom. Um, it, it, it's interesting. It does, keep, um, it does keep us closer. And in some cases with people I'm talking to, um, even in, in even better communication, there's a focusing of our, of our minds and our schedule. Um, there's a certain efficiency that, that comes with, with doing that. Um, frankly, um, uh, getting pulled out of the routine, and in my case, I've, I've now been twice pulled out of a routine. We we sold we sold nigh, and then all of a sudden, I'm um, climbing into a, a new reality, and yang bang, here here is yet another new reality. Um, it's accelerating uh, my mental change. That's great. That's great. Well, let me let me lead off by asking um, asking you, Carrie, how many years have you had? Uh, business conversations over the dinner table with George? Um, about, no, I'm not that old. So <laughs> <laughs> around 32. 32 years. And so um, did you know when you got married what being married to an entrepreneur or a manager was, was going to mean for you? I remember coming home from Christmas dinner, I think the year we were engaged. And I realized that Christmas dinner was nothing more than a glorified board meeting. And it was at that moment that you thought, "Uh Oh, what have I let myself in for? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Yes. The inevitable Christmas board meeting. And it, 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 that goes all the way back to my childhood in terms of there were always, um, parts of a Sunday dinner when um, four generations might be at the table, including my great-grandmother. Oh. Something about the office would come up, inevitably. Uh, and then it would fade away, and then it would come back. So, George, um, Carrie's been having these discussions over the dinner table for 32 years. Many people who know you would think of you both 
as um, successful business owners, uh, parents, um, children of parents. Uh, but if you could uh, use a couple of nouns to describe yourself, George, now in terms of what you do professionally now, what would they be? Mentor, uh, advisor, coordinator, um, leader, but this is the interesting part. My, my leadership role ha is, has changed quickly, um, and it, it, um, it is refreshing because the, the leadership part of it, um, there's more clarity, more clarity than I've had in, in some time. I think about the last 10, 10 12 years. Think, let's go back to the uh, Great Recession and the day-to-day, -day very complex, in-the-weeds work on the finance side, on sales planning and helping with that, on strategic planning. And now I truly feel liberated more than ever to let the team that I put in place just go do it. And in our case, uh, the, the acquisition by Fuchs is going quite well, and there is quite a bit of strategic guidance coming from them. I understand what their great uh, what their greater mission is, and I'm letting my team do it, and I'm trying to help them. If I could characterize it in my vocabulary, would be the way you felt differently about managing, or sorry, you said leading in this situation as opposed to the Great Recession, and I was going to ask you about leading versus managing. Can you uh, say more about that? I can. Um, leading... Uh, Leading gives me, gives me far more freedom to focus on the big picture. Um, managing um, brought me into, into um, my tendency to uh, get too micro sure. in, my, in my work. Uh, really out of feeling out of necessity, um, particularly early on, uh, on the financial side. And of course, we, we did not have a CFO, so I really served that role to a great extent during um, during that whole time. So there was so, a lot of day-to-day. -day. So I asked you um, what were like a couple of nouns that you would say about what you do now, and you, I wrote them down. You said mentor, advisor, coordinator, leader. It, is that what you thought you were going to do when you were a kid? No. What did you think you were going to do? When I was a kid, uh, what, what I was focusing on being um, – a chemist and a, uh, a product development guy helping my dad out. And you know, I was thinking about being a chemical engineer. Did you have a chemistry set? I did. I had a chemistry set. I made some, a few messes. And then my one of my first jobs at Nye, and I was about 13 years old, 12 or 13, I was asked to come down and, and uh, mix up a, a slurry of grease with blue dye. And it became legend because I got blue dye everywhere everywhere. It was being discovered for years. Even after I came to Nye, the old timers said, George, look at this. It's blue. <laughs> blue. Was that your first job ever? No. Um, prior to Nye, I was uh, cutting some lawns and cleaning some swimming pools and, and, and uh, outside stuff like that. Carrie, what was your first job? 
either babysitting or house cleaning. Wow. So you both started off doing like uh, the basic stuff. We were doing the basic stuff. That's what you have to offer at that moment. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So as you move from uh, college to your career, remind me, I think, didn't you begin with a large organization? I did. I mean, I, uh, when I was in college, um, I was a chemistry major. And then shortly after that, um, went to business school. And I was one of those folks who uh, went to business school right after college. Oh, that makes two of us. Maybe we might be the only two. We might be the only two. I, I, when I was at Sloan, Sloan doesn't even allow that anymore. But it, uh, having been, they allowed it because I had worked for several summers for my dad. Um, a lot of computer stuff and other things, and worked in a family business. And I think I convinced them that I was ready. Um, neither here nor there. It was a it was a great experience. I I would my advice to anyone would be get more experience because it 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 obviously plays on what business school can do for you. But I I also um, was uh, my father was emphatic for both myself and my brother to uh, get out and do something for a while, because I knew I wanted to come back into the business. The question was when. And uh, a lot of interest in computers um, and IT. And uh, after business school, got a job um, at, I, at IBM in a um, technical marketing workstation marketing. I was on a team covering the banks in, in Rhode Island. And I was there at the beginning of that great thing called the PC. And it was a load of fun. Um, I My plan was to do that for five years, but um, about three years into it, my father called and he said, George, I need some help. And uh, we thought, talked at length, and uh, I decided it's time. Wow. So yeah. were you uh, happy at IBM? I was happy uh, on, in the day-to-day. -day. Yeah. It's interesting, by, the, uh, by three years, I was beginning to see what what really maintaining interest and happiness at a large corporation like that in the 80s would mean, which was um, a lot of moving, um, a lot of politics, um, and to get to the next interesting place was going to mean doing a lot of things that were um, just sort of checking off boxes, and it, 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 it didn't seem very productive to me. Do you, do you think you were, a, were you a good employee? I'll give you the vignette. <laughs> um, I How about you, Carrie? You can chime in here. Do you think you George was a good employee? I, I wasn't a thing then. She wasn't so. a thing then. Ah. Of course, she was always, she's always been a thing in my mind. But, that's, <laughs> but um, the vignette was, yeah, the day-to-day -day and, and uh, working at the accounts. But I remember um, a meeting with my manager, and this was into the third year. And, uh, you know, all good. It was a performance review at St. George. Um, you're not getting enough visibility up in the region, the regional office being Boston, up at Wyman Street. Um, you need to get up there more. And I'll be honest, um, I found what the folks in the region were doing to be a lot of bullshit. Um, and when we were asked to do large programs and bring our customers to events, they were terrible. And I spent most of my time apologizing to my customers Ouch. <laughs> for, for this event. And I didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, um, so there was the sort of the negative aspect of, of corporate 
that that I saw. Uh, and was there an event going on at night right about that point where your dad felt it would be important to bring you into the business at, at that point? Yes. Um, not one specific event, but automotive at Nye was taking off in the early 80s. And it was simply a matter of he needed help. Um, he needed help in general. Um, and he wanted me to get in there and start learning. But most importantly, he needed someone to computerize the company. And it was beautiful because I had gained a lot of experience. It built into a great interest of mine. And I could come in, and I think this is so important in any family business. Um, no matter where I'm living, I, no matter where I might have lived at that moment physically, all of the employees would think, oh, boy, that guy's just in because his dad wanted him, and he's sitting at the dinner table every night, and they're, they're talking about us. And I needed to come in and establish my own credibility, independent of my father, and my own identity, and computerizing the company at that moment in time and bringing in these still relatively new things called PCs and a computer network was just the way to do it. And oh, by the way, I had to learn the whole company to do so. And George, what would have been roughly the size of the business, however you want to measure it? I was employee number 17. Ah. Um, and the year I joined, we um, just hit the $3 million in sales mark. And that that company hit the three million in sales mark, having been in business for how long? Since eighteen forty four, and in my family since nineteen fifty six. Wow, wow! So, uh, as you came into the business, and I understand that the immediate um, task, perhaps, was to bring technology to the business, IT communications. Um, did you have a view? You and Carrie have a view of what you were trying to get to in terms of a destination, both professionally for the business, but also for yourselves? Hmm. Gosh, I have to, thinking, thinking back, um, professionally, um, you know, in those early days, it was, um, you know, it's interesting. It, it, it was a chance to to do things at, at work that I had always enjoyed, the chemistry, the, the, the product side, which after the computerization work, I really got into. Um, so there was that that day to day aspirationally for the company and, and what it might become. Yeah. Came later. Honestly, um, you know, we got we got married in 1988. Um we, um, our life, our lives have been um, very much entwined in the, shall we say, the requirements of the family business and being here locally. But I loved the fact that that it gave us a certain level of freedom and flexibility. Maybe not total freedom. I mean, we're here. You know, there are certain, obviously, with any job in any location. But still, um, as, as hard as I had to work at any given point, how I worked was basically more my choice and the choice of, of um, my father and uh, a, a more collegiate and, um, shall we say, less political 
compared to the IBM days. More, there, there was a certain comfort and certainty in being in a family business, um, always with the risk that it, it was a bit of an all or nothing. But but well, that end, it's it can be tricky for some family members to uh, navigate the role of, in your case, being son of the boss, right? Yes. And then what year did Fred, your brother, join the business? Fred joined in 1994. Okay. So um, you both ultimately were navigating the role of being son of the boss. How, how did you view that as a challenge, and how did you do that? Um, I, it, I spent a lot of time um, kind of in, in – um, almost did, you know, with great respect and at times in awe of what my father created. And I felt I wanted to do whatever I could to, to maintain the vision he had, which um, I shared. Was he a close mentor and coach of yours? Oh, yes. Very much so. Uh, oh, gosh, very much so. Um, and one, one, of, one of many phrases he had, were, and they were very simple, was George, um, whatever you're working on right now, you want you want to think about how you're going to work yourself out of this job and into the next one, into the next challenge, into the next duty. Um, and he was absolutely right, um, particularly to ultimately take the helm of the company. Um, and but but he he made great decisions. Uh, in 1994, um, he had some health issues. Um, at that point, he was uh, 64 and um, decided he needed to step back from running the company. But he also correctly saw that um, I was not ready for it yet. And, and, and not so much ready, um, shall we say, in terms of age or, or capability, but ready experientially. And the company needed a, um, a really good marketeer and, and uh, sales strategist. Um, so for uh, the next uh, six, seven years, um, uh, a uh, DuPont um, business unit manager took an early retirement and joined us as our president. And boy, we learned a heck of a lot from him in terms of building a sales, a much a large sales team, a marketing strategy. And I dove into doing a lot of early, we'll call it Marcom, marketing communications work and advertising um, remember the big old Thomas registers and yes, absolutely. They, they were great high shares. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, so it occurs to me two things. Number one, wow, your dad, um, was really brave that he had, uh, one, two sons come into the business and yet he reached outside the business to recruit and retain a leader. And that must've caused or potentially could have caused some, some anxiety and some friction in the family, right? Well, it did create some friction in the family. Um, for my brother and I, um, it Jerry was the right temperament, and um, he saw his role as both being a leader, but also as being a mentor for both of us in in different ways. And he um, um, was, uh, I wouldn't say deferential to us in any sense, being family members, but his direction to us and his leadership had in mind being able to hand over things at a later date when he went into full retirement. Um, 
unfortunately, there were a lot of tensions because uh, at that time, the company was not owned by um, my side of the family. Uh, in other words, my father, mother, brother and I um, were really um, you know, the mock family. And then my, uh, my mother's brother um, owning a, um, uh, an associated closely held company, a thread company. Um, but he actually um, had the majority ownership and really didn't particularly like Jerry Madden that much um, for a variety of, of, of reasons. It didn't work that well for him. His, uh, my uncle was someone who wanted to see someone who was uh, running around and constantly in the factory. And Jerry's style was much more corporate and directive. And he was very effective, but he was in his office a lot and a lot of meetings, and that just didn't set well until ultimately um, my uncle made the decision, um, Jerry's got to go, um, and forced um, a termination. Um, and at that point, I took, um, I took over, and that was in uh, 2000. Um, I was ready. And what and what would be the scale of the business at that point? At 2000, well, I'll give you the numbers. In 1994, when Jerry uh, took over, the company had hit 10 million in sales, um, and he was number 40. In 2000, when I took over, we were 22 million in sales. I forget the number of employees. I think it was in the 90s um, at that point. So there's the scale. Um, we also had gone from one to um, about 10 or 11 direct sales engineers, and Jerry had built an international team of channel partners. So it was transformative, not just in doubling the business. So as you came into become the CEO of the business, was it CEO? Uh, simply called president at that point. We added CEO a little later. Okay, so president at that point, and would your dad have been chairman at that point? He was chairman and and uh, uh, chairman of the board and treasurer. Right, uh, that, I remember those days. Uh, so, if you could now, with the benefit of hindsight, give some advice to the guys and the women that you work with, starting in two thousand as the president, in what ways would you point out to them that you might be challenging or tricky to work with? Ah, oh, that's an interesting question. I might be challenging or tricky to work with. And Carrie, you might uh, chime in here. In what yeah, ways please. do you think George might be challenging or tricky to work with for others? It's a good trait, but George wishes to please everyone. Yes. Yes. I, I, and that, I, that can be a sticky wicket. Um, I would say that, that, that um, you know, taking on this leadership role, um, I put my, my organizational skills uh, to work, um, learning better how to build a team. There were false steps along the way. And what I have had to learn to do since 2000, and it is a continuing and lifelong work in progress, is to um, manage conflict and to even do conflict. In, in ways that are constructive, as opposed to trying to make everyone happy, which uh, in the end makes everyone quite unhappy. Right. Isn't it amazing how 
in all of our lives, if we think about the people who strive to avoid conflict, sometimes, ironically, they end up being the people who have the most conflict in their lives. Absolutely. And I think the greatest learning exercise in those first eight years was um, um, in, in an effort to keep conflict down uh, and not pushing hard enough when there were issues to, to resolve them and maybe kick a few people. Um, it, it, it led to issues, some, some team issues, um, trust issues on the team, and people ultimately who uh, I had to let go. And it, it impacted the, um, to some extent, the uh, business's growth capability, but more importantly, the business's profitability and an organization because there was too much time spent squabbling. So was it about 2000? Remind me of when your side of the business gained ownership control of the business. Well, there was an interesting piece to this. Uh, This was after, um, after I took over uh, with the first year, uh, my uncle felt um, this would be a good time to sell the company. Yes. And this came very quickly, and he had a potential strategic buyer. Um, I would say that that he did not seek out your counsel, Pete, <laughs> or or any M and A firm in any meaningful way. So it was um, a true nightmare. Um, but it, in the end, um, my family was able to come up with uh, a transaction. Um, with some outside help, where we became very highly leveraged and created an ESOP and bought the company, basically bought the company from my uncle. It led to a fairly high debt load, but we managed it. And uh, the great success of, of, of those first um, seven years after that deal was um, we cleared out $13 million of debt um, by 2007. Um, the one problem that came with that was um, my uncle held on to some shares and then put those shares to the company in 2008. And we were back in debt again, closed on that deal. And two months later, the crash hit. Right. So then we had a, a, another challenge um, um, with, with um, crashing sales and a $5 million note. And during this time, uh, you were uh, the president of the business. Mm-hmm. Your dad was still involved in, would you say, the day-to-day in the business? Oh, very much so. Yes. And Fred was involved in the business. Very much so as well. And, you know, it's sort of axiomatic that um, organizations work best when there's um, leadership role clarity, R-O-L-E, clar- clarity. How did the mocks sort that out so that people understood what the different roles uh, had different responsibilities. We sorted that out pretty well, quite quickly. Um, as, as I took over the business, a certain amount of that role playing um, came in trial by fire when we were uh, basically in the middle of what we termed a hostile takeover, but then pulled together our LBO ESOP deal. And it, it forced a, um, having a major team that I led. Um, it 
it put Fred in a role where he was putting a lot of time into the legal aspects and the due diligence, which in those days was a lot of people coming in with all the books scattered about uh, the conference room, among other yes. things, and organizing all the attorneys. And for my father, um, stepping back and being a very, very helpful uh, advisor and mentor, kind of like where I am now. So right then in the confluence of paying off the debt between 2000 and 2008, uncle putting the stock back to you, did you and Fred and your dad have views that, uh-oh, we could lose this? Oh, we might, yes. Was there a danger that, uh, was there a danger of extinction for Nye? There was a danger of extinction. Um, it was, um, um, there were nights um, I'd be up at two or, th two or three in the morning drafting letters and emails, um, whether it was, um, gosh, including literally to um, the CEO of the potential buyer that, that uh, we didn't want to do this. And I, I, I literally was telling him, if, if, if you get us, I'm out of here gone immediately. And Carrie, what are your, uh, yeah. what were your thoughts about those days? Um, I think I've always had total and complete trust in George and I was never worried. And that may seem a bit naive. It may have been, it may have been, we just had younger kids. So I was fully involved with that, but I never worried because George always seemed to have a good handle on what was going on. Wow, that's great. So, George, um, you were really doing a good job at home. We should give you an Academy Award. Thank maybe. you. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it, 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 I mean. Well, and also, in, in, I mean, maybe smoke and mirrors, but I think also we're a pretty good team. We'd always lived pretty conservatively. I knew if he needed to find a job, he could, you know, it, it just, life could have looked different than we had known it, but it was going to be okay. I, I, at that point, I, I was feeling more um, angry than fearful, angry at why are we in this position? This is all so unnecessary. Right. For instance, it, it, you know, if my uncle wanted to sell, why throw a strategic number at us? Just couldn't you have just come to us and we could have come up with a very good arrangement to do it that would have been pretty darn lucrative. But, you know, I, I don't want to dig deep into the into the family laundry on that. Um, right. It is what it is. Uh, that's in the past. We've it's, it's all calmed down. Um, but it. It, it, it was a an intense um, and, and more just angry period. We could be doing so many other things. And here's the biggest problem with that. And I think this is very, very important for anybody looking to sell a company. Um, what and it and it when I first um, came to you, Pete, and, and and to Rob, and you first visited and getting going uh, to for these discussions in 2014. My feeling at that point, I didn't know what we were going to do. Were we going to sell? We were we never going to sell. But one thing was for sure: if we were going to go down that road, 
we were going to do it all with a careful, intimate plan, um, not just to um, protect the family's um, wealth and, and legacy, but to protect the company um, and, and to protect um, both the people and the company's whole um, persona and identity in the best way we possibly can. Um, we saw what happens when it is a complete free-for-all. And I, I struggled for many years with the fallout of that. There were people, high-level people, who I had to fire because of what went on during due diligence. I had a gap in um, um, my leadership team that took years to clean up. But we did it step by step. And as part of that, you ended up with a minority ownership by an employee stock ownership plan. Yes. And uh, I know at the time uh, that you uh, didn't ask for this potential transaction to be thrust upon you. But in retrospect, would you say that having an ESOP was uh, a, a useful thing, was on balance a benefit, was on balance a challenge? How would you characterize it? Um. On balance, it was a benefit. Um, I'll be the first to say that ESOPs, and I think in particular, minority ESOPs like this, where where um, it, it, it 100% ESOP is a, in a funny way almost easier because the whole company is in one pool. You don't have two different shareholder groups. These are ESOPs are basically heavily regulated ERISA governed retirement plans. Um, they create a tremendous upside for the participants. Creates um, it, it, it number one. Um, it, it is a lot of work to manage them and manage them properly. Um, but that's an administrative question. Um, in terms of an employee motivation question, it's interesting. There was a flurry early on where um, uh, we got excited. Uh, it got people who were joining it excited. Then. Um, as time went on and the shares were all distributed, um, it became very quiet um, until this transaction. And I have to say, um, the, the people who have, uh, the employees who had ESOP shares were the people who've been with us for the long term. And it was uh, exciting and, and motivational for them to see that they would be a part of, of, of this greater transaction. Um, and that was a positive. That was a motivator. And I think a motivator all the way to um, people who've, who've been more into what's happened and are sticking around. I think for uh, flip side, sort of um, another good effect is for a few people very close to retirement, um, it gave them this huge boost at retirement. It's accelerated two or three retirements, which is a bit of a nuisance at work, but totally understandable. And there, in it's it's great to see that that um, they're sharing in a, a really a meaningful way, uh, including uh, some some substantial money for a few longstanding employees. So you mentioned earlier that your dad had said to you, coached you on something like George, be thinking about the next job you're working yourself into. Yes. And uh, it occurs to me that uh, you had to have that cross your mind in 2000. 
And you had to have that cross your mind in 2008. You bet. Because in 2000, uh, the, the company could have been sold. And if you were genuinely going to leave, then you would have spent the last 20 years in a different career. That's right. But instead, you persevered. And in 2000 and 2008, and as you mentioned, we began our dialogue uh, back in 2014, something like that. Yep. And you and Carrie and your brother have been very, very thoughtful about the future of the business. And today, um, you've come through a journey where you have you've acquired a new majority owner for the business. Yes. Chosen who you want to put the business in the hands of for the business's next chapter. Um, Geez, it strikes me that you really took your dad's coaching to heart that you really have been thinking about the next job that you're working yourself into. And now you are on the precipice of that next job, right? I am on the precipice of that next job. And what's that going to be? Uh, I think I said to you in a note earlier, um, the COVID crisis has really, uh, I think I said to you, it's like someone has put jumper cables on my ears and given me a a shock to the system in terms of clarity. Um, And I mentioned um, being an advisor, a mentor, um, yes, a a leader, um, but... um, not so much a manager, uh, and that's a, it's an important distinction. Um, I'm enjoying this transition, and uh, this summer, uh, this summer we'll be organizing another step in the transition in terms of, of my role, um, and I will be um, turning over uh, the reins of, of really running the business to somebody else. Um, and I will, um, um, I, I don't know what the title will be. I don't worry about it. I'm working on this with my new boss, <clears throat> excuse me, with my new boss in Chicago. Um, but I'm looking forward to a, um, you have to excuse me a second. We've got a, a family member who is, uh, kids. A kid, the kids are, are on the rug behind us. <laughs> Perfect. I couldn't figure out quite what was happening there. I knew there was something. Noise. Well, let, was, let me ask you. I, so, I was I, I was having a little trouble with my thoughts because I want to break out <laughs> laughing. It was it was my, my. So, like at some points of our discussion over the years, George, whether it's been, you know, a serious business conference or whether it was over a beer after hours or at a Bigelow forum or with Carrie, at some point in the discussions over the years, you had mentioned some thoughts or some maybe they're just flitting thoughts, but thoughts about, gee, wouldn't it be great to be out of the business and be free of the day-to-day responsibilities? Because, you know, for a long time, it's been on Fred and me to make the business successful. And you've been the ultimate leader of the business. So actually, it's been more on you to make the business successful. There's hundreds of employees and their families who've been counting on you to make the business successful. And, you know, we, we chatted, you know, lightly about, well, what would you do if you weren't doing this? And chatted about some things. Yet this morning, it seems to me, in some ways, you're more into the business than ever. Tell Isn't me about that. Funny. I think that's worrying Carrie. Terribly. <laughs> Is yeah. it Carrie? Um, no. 
if he's happy with what he's doing and has satisfaction and pride in what he's doing, then I'm fine hanging on for as long as he wants to. But I do think there are other areas of interest that he should develop at this time. And uh, in terms of working my way out of one job and into another, um, what is so nice so far, and, and we can't predict the exact future, but what seems clear now is there is a role for me to play where Nye is a subsidiary of the Fuchs Group that is um, interesting and exciting. I am more into the business intellectually than, than it certainly as much as I've ever been. Um, and it is because of the freedom that I feel. Go back to before the close, um, and here it is, um, all of all of my family's um, sweat and and equity at stake um, with anything that might go wrong, um, with anything that we might want to do. I saw the business as having tremendous potential for its next chapter, but I also felt that it needed some something strong from the outside in terms of of um, um, both funds and and uh, experience, global access, for example, um, product strategy, um, definite, you know, wh where should this business go next to really be global in light of competition? And now I can be part of that without sweating the great risk. It was time. I didn't want to take that risk one more time. Let's put it that way. And really, in the past 60 days, none of us could have imagined the amount of uncertainty that's come into the world. Absolutely not. And um, I wonder if for the two of you, while I know you take the uncertainty seriously for yourselves, for your family, for your company, for your communities, but I wonder if there's a teensy bit of a sense of relief that, okay, at least we're not betting the farm every day. It's more than teensy. <laughs> uh, I think every day, oh my God, I am so glad we closed on January 24th. And to put it very um, uh, almost selfishly, it's not my problem. I will do everything I can to help. But um, we now have a, a $3 billion global family office, family controlled business in Germany that is so very capable of, of keeping all its subsidiaries, including Nye, uh, whole and operating. And um, uh, I can't think of a better parent uh, for us in these times. Um, they, um, it, it, it makes it a lot easier for me. And I frankly think at this point, a lot easier for everyone because in 2008, um, when that hit, um, one of the worst days in my life was, was the day um, we laid off one quarter of our workforce. And an even worse day was the next morning um, trying to calm down everyone who stayed. And fortunately, um, we came around the curve and things were much better within six months. But there was one day where we were one paycheck away or shall we say one payroll away from disaster 
And thank God we got a payment from China for one of our bulk shipments. It was that tight. <laughs> But it turned around. Today, if we run into any of that, uh, as Stefan Fuchs said in, in an address he did last week, um, we have $200 million in cash set aside for this, if necessary. They have it. it the, 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 I have, we have sold the company. What we have sold is, is the family risk and what today would be fear, it was time. We've already done that a few times. And I was ready, my brother ready for new chapters. My new chapter happens to include continuing to be part of this, this wonderful company in a way in which I can help. And when um, I truly retire from it in, in, in a few years, um, I can look back and, and just uh, and just say, boy, it's in good hands, and I'm glad I helped with that. Another question. The question you were just on was like when you decide, when you are ready to transition from the business, and just who knows when that is. But in your mind, and in Carrie, in your mind, if you were to pick a, like this sounds basic, but if you were to pick a job or two that you would always have loved to do, or if you picked something that now at this point in your life you wanted to try professionally or not for profit or intellectually. Is there anything that's top of mind? Meteorologist. Meteorologist. Yes. I'm, she took the words out of my mouth. It's funny. There is really, how cool is that? Yes. Um, uh, there are, you know, I'm glad we focused on that because there are loads of things that I, I want to step up that have been sitting in the, in the, um, in the background, including work with nonprofits, say the New Bedford Whaling Museum, and I am stepping that up right now. But I uh, have already researched um, getting online certifications from Penn State, which is one oh, of the yes. top schools for yes. that, yeah. in, in meteorology and, and, and um, digital forecasting. It's just a, a, one of my um, um, unique areas of interest. I love the weather. Part of it is from points of sailing in the past and being on the water and, and particularly marine weather. Um, and uh, also uh, the, the whole, the, all of the uh, scientific work on climate change simply makes meteorology all the more interesting with a new context for it. Yeah, I totally get that. I also love the weather. And I also, as a sailor, think a lot about the weather. And I have been uh, extremely disappointed, like most people, of how you know inaccurate uh, traditional weather forecasts can be. I've, so many times, I'm sure this has happened to you. I'll be uh, 100 miles offshore, and it'll be blowing, you know, northeast at 20 knots, and the forecast is saying it's going to blow 10 knots from the southwest all day long. And I'm like, what is going on here? Uh, but that's what's so interesting about it. I mean, I I, uh, I have to quote I. I I've been enjoying um, listening to uh, Tony Fauci, yes. who is so good. And there's a, a, a talk he gave a while back where the thing he loves about, about science in general is, is how unpredictable it is. Meteorology and weather, of course, is very unpredictable. But the beauty of it is that it is, it is this complex mosaic that if you boil it down, there are some very predictable elements to what's going to happen with with the atmosphere or with with temperature basic physics the complexity is the mosaic of how they all dance together yes 
and all of the local and global things that are affecting it. That's that's what makes the climate change issue so interesting. So what I wanted to ask you, I said I, said I had a question that went on a slightly different uh, tack. And what I wanted to ask you about was, um, you know, we've talked a lot over the years about behavioral biases and how as owner managers, they affect us. As principals with skin in the game, we have these emotional biases, whether it's negativity bias, which in my view is the most uh, profound one for all humans, mm-hmm. or, um, you know, loss aversion or availability bias, and many, many of them, we've talked about them. Expert advisors, like M&A advisors and like other advisors, do not have those cognitive biases on behalf of their clients. They are they're said to be and supposed to be coldly objective. You seem to leverage this concept exceptionally well with your advisors. I would say of 39 years of being in this business, you get the gold star <laughs> for being able to sort out, I think, hearing your advisors, but um, making your own decisions, um, hearing advisors, maybe even in different domains and being able to take that goulash and, and bring that into some decisions. Um, how did you get so good at that? Uh, uh, I, I'd like to think, um, I, I'd like to think I'm a good listener, even if it, uh, on that, how did I get so good at that? Um, I am, in, in all of my working life, um, I have had to parse so many messages at one time um, and, and to try to make a decision that, that uh, you know, put it all into context. So, so it, let's put it in the context right now of, of, of selling the company and, and how to go about doing this um, and, and listening to the advice that... <clears throat> Um, you all at Bigelow have, have been giving me for a while. Um, I had a mission in mind, which was, um, um, I don't even want to say selling the company was the first mission. It was um, family freedom, which with all that that implies. And of course, selling the company and the financial gain is part of that. And um, I wanted a plan. And I came to you and Bigelow, um, having already researched and, and learned a bit about your model and your approach, which um, seems unique in, in the um, M&A world, of, especially for companies like ours and our size, and thought, boy, um, this, is, this is an opportunity not just to have a transaction, but um, to r- truly achieve freedom because it's going to require um, heavy thought, heavy work, heavy discipline. You early on, I remember one of our first meetings and said, there's some things we need to talk about. This is going to be some tough love. And you were absolutely right. Uh, I did not come out of those first two meetings depressed anxious, worried, feeling like a failure. I came out of them and said, okay, he's right. He's right on most of it. A couple of things I don't agree with, but I get it. And we're going to do it. We're going to fix this one step at a time. I'm not going to set a timetable. 
And it, 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 uh, I feel like I've been very, very good at, at taking a lot of, of advice and um, instruction <clears throat> and mentoring and pulling it together and coming up with a plan. The bigger challenge at times has been in, in keeping my teams on track, and I've gotten better at that because yeah. I'm one who likes to do it all myself. Yeah. But that's a separate question. Well, no, I, I really admire the way <clears throat> that you what you just said is that you you had a plan, you had a destination in mind. I agree. You you always were careful not to stake it out by putting a date on it, mm-hmm. but rather that it get, we'll know when it's time. And I think that bringing your management team into it happened exactly at the right time. Let me let me change tax on you a little bit. Um, you both, I think, Carrie said for thirty-two years, uh, she's been having a dinner table conversations, and you have a couple of um, mostly grown kids. Is there an unavoidable trade-off to be made between being a good parent and a successful entrepreneur? It's a it's a big challenge, um, to the extent that. Um, there were there were times um, all along where um, the complexity of what I had to do, ranging from managing a, 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 a complex business to, frankly, managing the inevitable conflicts within a family um, that are who are involved in the business, meant I may not have always been as present, and I mean mentally present, even if I was physically present, for things that were happening at any given time for either of our kids and most certainly for Carrie. And I'll always love her for her patience and, and um, perseverance during that whole period. And one thing I'm, I, I, when I talk about freedom, um, I now have a lot more freedom to um, be in the present moment with my loved ones. And and if you, George, or you, Carrie, could speak to your kids and say that uh, if there's a lesson or two that you wanted them to take about the world of work from these past 32 years of entrepreneurship, what would it be? The funny thing about our kids is they're both entrepreneurs. <laughs> Yeah. Funny how that happens, isn't it? Funny how that happens. They, they are. Um, it's, you know, it, a, a set piece of advice. I, I, I could give a long answer, but, but a short answer. Uh, there were times, there were too many times where um, I didn't, seize the opportunity to live in the moment. It sounds very simple. Um, it, it, it sounds very obvious. But when you're in the arena um, of, of uh, managing a growing company, and here, you know, I, and during my tenure, um, my family and our whole team took it from 30 to 51 million. We have a great story, a great success. And where it is our response where we have to be responsible for all of it, even if we're not doing all of it. You get um, you're just wrapped up to it 24/7. Anything you can do to better compartmentalize your day, to um, um, 
be in the moment with family and friends, the the happier you'll be. And I'm not looking back though and feeling like there I have great regrets um, because I don't think it was ever that bad. Carrie, you can. You, <laughs> yeah. No, there are always trade-offs. There are always trade-offs. Yeah. So, um, and there is no, it, it's never perfect, but be always be mindful of the present. And if at all possible, go there because frankly, the times that I was more apt to be in the present, I frankly also then wound up being more in the present at work. So this applies to building off the paragraph you just said, but it also applies to these curious times that we're living through right now. And my experience has been that for entrepreneur owner managers like you, that 90% of the challenge ultimately um, ends up being psychological. This is especially true for people who have sustained success over long periods of time like you have. And the thing is that to sustain this success psychologically means we have to put a tremendous amount of self-care into ourselves. So for some people, you know, the triumvirate of self-care might be uh, sleep, nutrition, exercise. Um, maybe for some people that means meditation. Maybe for some people that means yoga. Um, Carrie, you're an accomplished athlete. Um, what have you been doing in your workout routine recently or this year or these few months that have been particularly energizing to you in this time? I started started with mountain running. It's a little hard when you live in the coastal plain to do that. Um, so I was reliant on a treadmill at our local club that's now closed. So that avenue is is not open to me. But running has always just been an outlet for me. Does does mind follow body or does body follow mind? That's a very good question. I think it changes from day to day or week to week, depending on what's going on. I feel, you know, I'm thinking of myself and um, with uh, trying to impart more, more, uh, more time to um, exercise, um, whether it be um, going for a run or, or the Peloton or uh, I think it's um, body follows mind. For me, I, I need to once again be, be in the moment. And and really let myself go. I've been I've been um, trying meditation with um, some success, but I, I have not been um, consistent with it. But it it has been helpful, and and uh, shall we say it's an interesting journey. But um, I I think that if if here, here it is. In terms of mind and letting yourself go, if I start to turn a lot of routines into um, a schedule of must-do, I should do this, should do this, should do this, it doesn't work as well. Yeah, same, same for me. I, uh, I know that some people seem to be able to use uh, negative reinforcement to force themselves to do something. doesn't work for me. I'm called to things yeah, as opposed to being forced into them. Well, let me ask you about that. So 
you know, on this podcast, the a lot of people listening to this are really successful entrepreneurs. And some of them are wanting to be successful entrepreneurs. And so we think a lot about goals and behaviors and a lot about habits to reach those goals. What would you, either one of you say, are a couple of your best habits? In my case, um, it's, it's just having, just being very, organization and prioritization. The two obviously go together. Um, and the goals that I have had for the company, be they strategic or in the day-to-day -day specific things that are important to get done, um, I just organize myself, um, set the time aside and, and accomplish so much in a given day. If, if I let myself um, jump around too much <laughs> and, and intersperse things, nothing gets done. Right. Uh, Carrie, how about you? I think discipline, which is sort of echoing what you're saying, George. It's um, organizing myself and just having the discipline when I decide that I'm doing something or that I need to do something, it gets done. Good friend of mine says, um, he says this very simply. He says, see, in life, you get what you focus on. Yeah. So you have to guard what you focus on really carefully. Because if you focus on all problems in life, you're going to have be life filled with problems. So yeah. do you, either of you have any kryptonite? Um, okay, I have my ultimate weakness. You go, Carrie. My ultimate weakness is the need to... It's not always very attractive, but if I see in any way, shape, or form someone, not necessarily attacking, but hurting George, that gets me going really fast. Yep, I can resonate with that. Hmm. And that gets you, yes, and it does. And she, a Carrie is my, have, my passionate defender. I've gotten in trouble for that, but I'll keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, my kryptonite, my weakness. Um, I think for me, it there are times, this, this is sort of the, the, the other side of being organized and prioritizing, there are times where I, I can get wrapped up and stew in my own juice and it doesn't go anywhere, um, but down. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm not talking about depression. I'm just talking about a bit of paralysis. Yeah. Can't we all? Yeah. 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 And unfortunately there are times where that'll manifest itself for several days of now I'm, I'm stewing in my juice, something's on my mind, and all of my activities are stulted, stunted and, and, and incomplete. I'm not getting things done. And I need to kick it. So people listening to this podcast, George and Carrie, a lot of them would think, wow. So here's this couple. They've been together for a long time. They took a family business that was $3 million, George, when you started it. You uh, ran it for all these years with Fred, your brother, and your father while he was with us. Uh, you built it into a very powerful business, a business that I think is uh, the most innovative business in your industry in the world. I think there's no question about that. And um, you've gone through a process of choosing. 
who the next majority owner for the business is going to be, and the world is your oyster. What advice would you give to some smart, driven college student today who thinks they want to be an entrepreneur like you? The first, uh, the, the first uh, two pieces of advice. Um, the first would be uh, get out there from school and learn. And um, learn, learn in areas that are your passion. Um, and, and also learn how to build relationships and to learn from others and to teach others. And then, um, with that experience and confidence in, in, in place, and I, I have to say, um, confidence is everything in this. You have to be confident in, in your ability and as well as in the mission that you have for your company. Um, pursue, pursue that mission um, with, with great energy and vigor, perseverance and vigilance. And the most important word is tenacity. It's what our friend Angela called grit. That's grit. I, I, uh, I love that word. Um, I, um, I, I'm not one, I'm one to be modest, but I really do feel I've got grit. You do. I, I can confirm that. So Carrie, how about you? What advice would you give to a smart driven, say high school or college student who wants to become an entrepreneur? I don't really know that I have advice. Um, You've watched it pretty closely and pretty intensely, pretty close up for a lot of years now. And that's maybe why I can't kind of filter something through. I'm too close (laughs) to it. Do you think Um, that, Carrie, do you think that there are really, would you hear poor recommendations being given to young people who want to be entrepreneurs? Hmm. Not necessarily. Okay, I have one. I, I'm just I'm extrapolating from um, having conversations with our son, who's an entrepreneur. Yep. Um. And the, I think one of the most important things that he relayed to me early on was have belief in yourself. I really believe, and maybe it speaks to what you're talking about, passion, George. You just really believe in yourself and, and, and strive towards that one goal. Because if you believe it, if you can see it, it will happen. So those are, I hope that listeners are hearing this, that those are really two sides of the same coin. Really interesting. Belief in yourself, passion, grit. Let's pretend we go to sleep tonight. It's April 7th, 2020. And magically, we wake up tomorrow, and it's April 8th, 2030, 10 years from today. I'm not asking you what's going to happen. We are in 2030 right now, and you're saying to me, Pete, remember 10 years ago we had that interview, and the technology kept cutting out, and oh, my God, remember that day? And it was pretty soon after we did the transaction with folks. Tell me, I say, what are you working on today, 10 years afterwards? And you say... I'm, uh, gosh, God, today I'm, 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 um, 
got a couple. April 8th, 2030. 2030. Two great things are going on right now. I'm sitting here planning our next um, um, adventure, hiking in the um, Dolomites. Um, and I'm also um, off to a meeting later today. I'm now board chair of um, this cool new nonprofit um, in Boston. Cool. Carrie, you want to add to that? Any good day starts out with a run, so I'm definitely going running. And she's also planning that hiking in the Dolomites. Does <laughs> no, does I not did that in 2020. Um, <laughs> does not quite knowing what each of you might be doing in 10 years fill you with trepidation or excitement? It's a good thing. Excitement. Cool. I think the horizon is broader than either one of us realizes, and we still have to sit back and assess the close of the business deal and where we can go now. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I, and I don't, thinking of the stages of, of, a, of an EOM post-close and venture the hibernation phase. Yes. Um, I would assume for me, if there's a hibernation phase, it, it's going to come gradually. It would be after I really step back and either partially or fully retire from, from Nye. Um, and I, I don't worry about that. I mean, look, let's be honest, having the proceeds of this sale creates a lot of security, but that's financial security. There is still what I'd like to call mental security. And um, I, um, I was a little worried for a while as we were going through the transaction, my God, what am I going to do with myself um, after this is all done? And I was mentioning that to, to uh, you know, Rob Inches. Uh, we were playing yes. golf and he said, George, you'll have no problem figuring out what you're going to do with yourself. <laughs> and he was just basically saying, you're, you're, that's crazy. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I'd like you to consider replacing the word retire with rewire. Oh, I think that's a great word. Because that's how I think of you. Yeah. So in this group of listeners, uh, entrepreneur, owner-managers, both some of them are for-profit, most of them are. Some of them are not-for-profit leaders. Among this group of people who are listeners, superior achievement is very common. Not all of them would describe themselves as fulfilled or content, however. Would you describe yourself as content? Oh yes, uh, I am. I am content to the extent that that um, I'm proud of of what I've been, uh, have accomplished. Um, this was this was a job well done, absolutely. Um, but I also. Um, I'm a firm believer that this is not the, the, in any sense, the end of the road. There's more to accomplish. Rewire. It's, it's a rewire. Getting some general introductions and notes. And um, their description of Nye was just a few words. Technology at its best for the entire company. Now, nice. That felt. That, <laughs> now, if anything, if my father had been, could he's up there listening to that. Yeah, nice. That is, in summary, his goal. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. Yeah. And I do feel the company's in good hands. 
George and Carrie, I just wanted to tell you uh, how much I so appreciate your spending time with me uh, on our podcast interview today, speaking so candidly and authentically about uh, your backgrounds and for how you have built the business and some of the challenges and the way you've overcome those challenges in doing so. We learned so much from you, and I know that the entrepreneur owner managers who are listening to the podcast will learn from you as well. I have uh, loved our journey together. Uh, at Bigelow, we began working, I think you said, George, in 2014, and we've loved every part of it. But most of all, I want to tell you how much I appreciate uh, our friendship. And I think, George, whoever receives your generosity as uh, the new um, role that you say you're playing as mentor, advisor, leader, and coordinator is very, very fortunate. Considering your dad's coaching to you about always trying to build the next job, he is standing up there going, mission accomplished. <laughs> oh, yes. There's no question about that. That's great. Well, listen, thank you both so much. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Take we'll care. talk soon. Thanks, Carrie. Thank Take you, George. Care. Well, bye. Bye. Bye-bye.